So the title is Materialist versus Pan-Experientialist Physicalism, and I will explain shortly what this means. And I want to begin with a quotation by Whitehead, which I like very much. The riddle of the universe is not so easy. One reason why I like it is something that only Whiteheadians can appreciate, I think, because the riddle of the universe is the title of Babuk by Eckel, and Whitehead always has uh, quotations and allusions in his language which are not open. So this is something which I really enjoy in, in Whitehead. But it is also the moral of my, of my, of my story. So neither materialist physicalist nor pan-experientialist physicalist or pan-psychism are, in my opinion, positions which we can, at the moment, at present, really hold with, with confidence. So I think that, so it's in the moment, I find myself in a kind of skeptical mood when I do feel that nothing really, really works, so it is, is wholly, wholly convincing. So what I will do, this is the outline of my, of my talk, I will begin with, very briefly, with some comment of, of, of what Kim says on materialist physicalism. Then I will go on uh, analyzing the, the argument for psychism that is provided by, by uh, uh, Strawson. And I think most of you know this stuff already, but I, my object in, in, in uh, dealing with this argument again is, is to try to understand what are really Strawson, Strawson's uh, assumptions. And I think there is at least one notion of experience in the argument which is not so obviously true or plausible <laughs> as Strawson uh, thinks, thinks, uh, thinks it is. Then I will go oh, discussing the composition problem, but uh, my object here is to find out precisely what generates this problem, what kind of assumptions generate this problem. So uh, uh, it is not obvious, I mean, it, it is intuitively obvious that there is a problem, but uh, the question is, is rarely asked what precisely generates this, this problem. And this is what I'm trying to do, to go back and see what is the logical form of, of, of the difficulty. And I think James is the only philosopher I know who gave us at least a position, a clear position as to, as to this, what precisely generates the composition problem, why precisely we have a problem there. And then I will go discussing Whitehead uh, pan-experientialism, or at least the version provided by Griffin in his book, Unsnarling the World Not. This should be 1997, not 1998. But anyway, and, and Griffin argues that Whitehead does not have the composition problem. Uh, my claim is that Whitehead does have the problem. It just appears in a slightly different form. But that is only, I also argue, this only becomes clear if we know what James says about this, this difficulty. And then at the end, I would like to make some general remarks about what my conclusions are in this, in this paper and what I see are the prospects for, for pump psychism. Some of you know some of this stuff, especially what I say in point two or three, but I think it might be nonetheless interesting to hear it once, once again. So the truth near enough, this is part one. I think this is already a very <laughs> strange sentence, the, the truth near enough, all right. Okay, this is what Kim says on physicalism. He begins by stating the problem in a way which we all know. He says, through much of the 20th century, especially during the second half, debates over the mind-body problem were shaped by physicalism. That is, the metaphysical belief that all things that exist in this world are bits of matter and structures aggregated out of bits of matter. And if we have this view, if you have this physicalist conviction, then the foremost metaphysical problem about the mind is where in the physical world our minds fit it. In fact, whether minds have a place in such an austerely physical world at all. 
So this is just a statement of the problem. And I think already here we see we have some nice, nice assumption popping up. Uh, so why should the physical world be austere? I don't really see that. But anyway, let's go what is Kim's uh, uh, analysis of the problem. Well, it distinguishes quite rightly between two alleged marks of the mental, on the other one intentionality, and on the other one quality or subjectivity. And Kim believes that intentional states, so belief, desire, or memory, they can be integrated within a physical universe by means of function, functional reduction by specifying uh, what, are the, the, what is the kind of behavior that we uh, tend to, uh, to assume uh, when we are in a search, search, certain uh, mental state. Uh, he thinks that this uh, definition, this functional definition, are possible in principle, which is already, I think, a controversial claim. But he thinks they're possible, and he thinks they're only very difficult to achieve in, in fact. Actually, he believes this is all philosophers should do. Uh, if I think Kim believes we should all try to give this functional definition and work together with scientists in, uh, in studying the, the brain so as to get uh, better and better definitions. So neurology gives us information so that the philosopher can get better definition. Once we get the definition, they go back to the scientists who studies the brain in, uh, in the light of this definition to see if they, if they, if they work. So there is, some nice, there is really a nice feature here in, in Kim's analysis. So that if we have functional definition, philosophy becomes almost a science or something which can interact uh, positively and constructively with science. And this is, I think, is a good reason for being physicalist, actually, or functionalist, uh, sorry. There is also the other aspect, qual uh, phenomenal aspect, or qualia. And here, uh, Kim makes a claim which, I mean, is not new. It's not the point. He says, qualia cannot be functionally analyzed. Qualia are the mental residue that cannot be accommodated within the physical domain. Okay, we all know this, or this is a well-known problem. What is, I think, really startling is the conclusion he draws, which is this one. Physically, this is not the whole truth, but is the truth near enough? And near enough should be good enough. Now, I think this kind of statement is very, very strange. I mean, Hegel says, das Varis, das Ganze. Und ich denke, das ist mehr, uh, I think this is, uh, Pardon, Hegel. <laughs> I think this is, this is correct. And, uh, unless we really know or have explained all aspects of a phenomenon, we can't really be sure that we have understood it. So this claim by Klim, uh, we have a problem, but that's not important. I, I think this is just one way of not really dealing with the difficulties of physicalism. So I'm very surprised that Kim is so ready to acknowledge that there is something that cannot be accommodated, but is also ready to just sidestep the problem and say, OK, this is good enough. What we, what we have. OK, I disagree with, uh, with Kim. And if you disagree with Kim, you might come to the conclusion, you might come, that there is a real problem that qualia pose. And this is what Strawson actually, actually think. This is the way uh, Strawson presents his case for, for panpsychism. And i like to, to go through uh, this, this assumption. Uh, the problem is old, and surely it is already there in James in the principle of psychology. What I think Strawson does is to provide a very nice con articulation of this difficulty, and he states his case in terms of two theses. One is the thesis which we call NE, so non-experientiality, according to which physical stuff, so matter, is in, in its fundamental nature, so intrinsically, something which is not not experiential. So 
uh, thesis is first, is first claim, and I think this is standard materialism. The second claim, which is called real physicalism, uh, consists of two claims. One is that experience is a real concrete phenomenon, and the second is that every real concrete phenomenon is uh, physical. And here, uh, I w I w there is some ambiguity here. Uh, what precisely is meant by saying that experience is a real concrete phenomenon? And I will deal with this problem at, at, uh, at end. But uh, surely it is clear that if we have these two assumptions, or if we share these two convictions, then we, we tend to have a problem, or we do have a problem, because it looks like RP, real physically, says that, well, there are experiences, they are physical, so there is something physical which is intrinsically experiential, and this is precisely what the first claim seems to deny. Now, traditionally, or one possible solution is in terms of the notion of, uh, of emergence, and why is this a solution in the first place? Why is this emergence should be a way of reconciling NE and ERP? This is the first question. And I think those who appeal to the concept of emergence, or whoever might want to appeal to this concept, must think that uh, mental states or conscious states, they are generated naturally out of purely physical stuff. So this is a kind of reconciliation because experience will remain physical in that it is produced naturally. Uh, this is what I want to emphasize in that I put naturally in, in, in italics. So uh, this is the way a solution might go. And what Strawson and before him James point out is that this transition looks like an ontological gap, looks like a kind of creatio ex nihilo. Where does the experience come, uh, come from? Uh, I want to say something more. I think Strawson thinks this is really creatio ex, ex nihilo. And I will say something about, about this uh, uh, later. One point I want to make now is that I don't think creatio ex nihilo is impossible. I think it is possible. Uh, I mean, it, there is no logical contradiction involved in the idea of creatio ex nihilo. So we have no, I don't think Strawson proves that emergence is impossible or is incoherent, which is what he thinks he's saying. I do think we do have nonetheless a problem in that if we admit creatio ex nihilo, well, then we admit the possibility of explaining how things come into existence. So we give up on rationality. But it is in, in this sense that something becomes just matter which we have to take at face value, but it is not in itself an incoherent uh, concept. So I th this is one claim I, I think needs to be, to be made. So what should we give up of this true assumption if we don't want to go for emergence because we think this will commit us to some form of yeah, just taking reality of positivism. We just recognize reality as it is, and we do not go any farther. Well, I think one possibility is to, to deny the first part of the real physicalism and to embrace eliminative materialism. Just it is not true that there are experiences. I like this quotation by Madel, which is, by the way, a dualist, a substance dualist, one of the few living substance dualists. And this passage, I think, is uh, very plausible. <laughs> so he says, it is incredible to suggest that people would have, say, devised appalling ways of torturing others, have debated the rights and wrongs of experimentation on animals, have blessed the day when anesthetics were developed, and so on, if no one had ever felt pain. So I think this is a very strong argument. If we renounce the idea that experiences are real, then there is so much of our life that we cannot even make sense of. Uh, and I think this is, uh, this is true. This is uh, something which I found very convincing. The other possibility of denying air pep, too, would be to 
to, uh, to hold that there are mental phenomena, that they are real, but reject the notion that they are physical. Uh, this would lead immediately to what Whitehead calls the bifurcation of nature, or what um, kind of substance dualism, perhaps. And even here, uh, I don't know what, what precisely is so bad about substance dualism. I mean, uh, David began yesterday with his assumption, and one assumption is monim is true. Well, <laughs> it's not clear to me that monim is true. And the standard objection about substance dualism is that there is a problem of interaction. Okay, there is a problem of interaction. I see that, but what kind of problem is it? Is that a problem which we cannot solve in principle? Or it is just a problem we do not know how to solve? It makes a, a big difference which way we go. If we say it is not solvable in principle, well, of course, the position will be false. But I don't think we are in a position of saying that. So it seems to me that even dualism remains uh, a viable uh, option at this, uh, at this point. So emergence is not <laughs> refuted and dualism is not refuted. So these are just two points I want, I want to, to make. So going further, if we choose to say, OK, uh, RE, uh, real experientialism is something we want to keep, then the other alternative would be to deny non-experientialism and to say physical stuff is in itself, in its fundamental nature, not something wholly and utterly non-experiential. So this is this are Strawson's own uh, own way of of uh, of putting the uh, the problem, and of course this is already pump psychism, and it is even clear that pump psychism turned out if you have uh, RP as a form of physicalism. So pump psychism is uh, is not a theory of the supernatural. Some people might think this is only a terminological point. I'm not sure this is so, but I will just go over this, uh, this point at the moment, perhaps uh, uh, later. So my question now will be, if we have any way uh, now to resist this, this conclusion, and there is one reply by this by Peter Simons, which really worries me, because it says, sooner or later, science will explain the emergence of the experiential out of the non-experiential. Why then not suspend judgment and see what science will bring? This, I mean, the first time I read this sentence, I said, no, it can't be true. I mean, it's just renouncing being a philosopher. Um, but I f and my reply here would be, look, the problem is conceptual. So we know, or at least we have strong reason to think on the ground of what Strawson says, that given a certain conception of matter, the problem is insoluble. So, but the real question is not whether science or not will explain emergence someday. It's just that given the set of concepts we are working with now, the problem looks one we cannot solve. But then I've been thinking, so this was my first reply to this passage by, or this sort of re reply by Peter Simons. But then thinking about it a little bit more, I came to see that perhaps he has a point. Perhaps his whole point is to say, just let science study these things. They have methods. So if some sort of conceptual revision will come, it will not come from philosophers. It will just come from scientists who are really engaged with that problem. So. This is, I think, a very worrying problem. But it seems to say there is a real question, but it's not something that philosophers are equipped to deal with. And I tend to be kind of sympathetic with, with this. If I look at my curriculum, I mean, I've read Aristoteles. I don't think this really gives me much information about, about the brain. But perhaps I'm just talking about myself. So, so let's move on and see if there is, if we don't want to, to go to accept this reply, that if there is some way, some alternatives. One would be neutral monism. This is the position by Russell, and in one way by James, at a certain point of his career in the essays on radical empiricism. So there, are, there is some stuff there 
which is neither mental nor physical, but according to the context in which it occurs, takes up uh, physical qualities or mental qualities. And I think if we follow the logic of, uh, of, uh, uh, of Strawson's argument, this doesn't really help, because we still have a question of what is that X. If we say it is non-mental, non, non then we, we have our problem from, from again, so how cool from something non-mental, non whatever that is, politics or anything else, something mental emerge. So I don't think neutral mornings will be a sort of response to the kind of challenge Strawson uh, before him, James, are posing. It is interesting that James has, all, has, uh, has the challenge as well as this kind of, of answer. So James is really a very rich uh, thinker. The other reply to me will be a kind of radical revisionism, and I think this is what Nagel is proposing, and I think when it is not just destructive, even Colin McGinn, so that perhaps there is some basic mistake that we are making in the way we are setting up the problem. Perhaps both assumptions we are working with, NE and LP, involve some conceptual blunder, or we are just not working with the right, with the right concept. So, this sounds a little bit like my second interpretations of Simons. And this is also something which I think remains open. It's something against which Strausson has nothing really to, to say. Now, a last point about my, uh, my discussion of Strausson's argument. So, uh, what, is it mean? what do we mean when we say that uh, experiences are concrete? I mean, I don't think Strausson can just be content with in order for his argument to work with the claim that people experience things. This is just too, uh, too general. He needs a much more robust and strong conception of, uh, of what an experience here is. I'll try to make the, the difference comes out in this way. So the first sentence is, it is an objective fact that there are experiences. I think this is pretty much controversial. Uh, and even what it means, okay, there are experiences, okay. I think this is something we can uh, more or less agree to. The second claim, experiences are objective facts. I think this claim, in one way, read in one way, can main, mean the same of A. Read in a different way, well, it, it introduces a different notion. The idea that experience themselves are facts of a special kind. So it seems to bear, to imply, or to suggest read in a certain way, the notion that there is some sort of reality sui generis, which is mental reality. Uh, and so the, the question here arises, in my opinion, is whether, whether Strawson is not really reifying experience, which is something an organism does with this environment, and turning a way of interaction into a being of a kind, experience, and then asking, well, how does this being arises? And then the answer will be, well, there is no such being. You have made it up by reifying, hypostatizing functions. This will be a possible reply to, to, uh, to Strawson. Now, here co is, is where my, uh, why I wanted to begin with Kim, because it is Kim himself who seems to be saying there is something which cannot be reduced to an interaction or to just a function. Uh, but on the other hand, I still remain quite puzzled by this notion that there is such thing as a mental reality, as a kind of being. Strawson has always this experience, this, this word experiential being, mental reality. It seems like he's reintroducing some sort of Cartesian notion of reality as a kind of, as a kind of, of stuff. And for some reason, I'm, I'm not really happy, happy with that. I'm not convinced that it is true. But he must have this notion if you want to say that emergence is really a kind of creatio ex nihilo, because creatio ex nihilo is an ontological, as an ontological principle. Okay, 
Let's now close this part and let's turn to William James. So it looks very freaky. And is, uh, I think there is a lesson to be learned from his discussion of, uh, of the composition problem. And I think there is a lot to be learned from, <laughs> from, from, from James, perhaps too much. So anyway, uh, the problem is, uh, this is the standard way the problem is posed. I will just read the second version, which is the version that Filipkov uh, uh, has. And I think it is a nice way of uh, raising the problem. It says, consider a physical ultimate that feels slightly pain. Call it little pain one. Consider then such slightly pain ultimates, little pain one, little pain two, and so on. And then his point is that if you start with these little pains, you cannot get big pain, which is qualitatively different from the, from the pains considered as uh, uh, from, from all the little pains. Now, uh, as I understand the early papers by, by Philip, he takes this to be a kind of refutation of, of panpsychism, really a reduction of absurdum, because he seems to be thinking that the idea of uh, that there is something like uh, mental composition is an incoherent notion. And now I, I have, I've asked myself, what is there really an incoherence here? And in my opinion, this passage by itself does not show that the idea is, is incoherent. And what I find here is that in this passage, but James makes something very similar, is, is that uh, the critic is imposing upon the panpsychist a certain view of consciousness as atomistic, as being made of, of parts that combine like bricks. And I don't see why the panpsychist would want to hold that view or that in any way is compelled to hold that, that view. So I think this passage by Goff is, is very good as an illustration of the problem. But I will not claim that it shows what it claims it is. So a refutation of, uh, of, of panpsychism. What, uh, what I do think, however, is that there is a serious problem. And what I think it is interesting is the way James analyzes the problem. Because he does think that there is an incoherence. But why does he think there is an incoherence? Hmm? So what are the assumptions as to the nature of experience this is the question that we, I think we must ask ourselves, that really generate the composition uh, problem. And I think this assumption come to the fore most clearly, not in the principles of logic, not in essays on radical empiricism, but in a later book called A Pluralistic Universe, when he eventually adopts panpsychism after 20 years of reflection ab uh, about it. He feels confident he can become a panpsychist. And I see there, also perhaps, I mean, if I read James, it's, it's not always so clear that uh, it works with this assumption. The first assumption is, uh, I will, I've called it phenomenal essentialism. It's just uh, the phenomenal conception of experience. So what is an experience? Well, to, exp uh, to be an experience is just to feel in a certain way. Uh, appearance and reality, this is how James has his case, are just one and the same in the case of, uh, of experiences. So in the case of a pain, what is the pain? Well, it is nothing over and above the way it feels. There is nothing else to, to, to the pain. So a mental fact is just what it appears to be, nothing, nothing else. The second uh, assumption or concept James works with is, I've called it phenomenal holism, following, uh, following Barry Denton. And this is a controversial claim, but surely I think James has it. And this is the view that if we take the mind phenomenally, it's just a total world of experiences unified at any one, at any one moment. And is, is the idea of James is that if you have this mind as a, as a wall of contents and you change something in this wall, 
then this change will reverberate upon all the other contents. So to make a, an example that might sound convincing, if I have a pain in my leg and I'm suffering and someone plays Metallica, then the pain will, will, hurt in, will be hurtful in a certain way. If someone plays Vivaldi, then my mental state will be changed and it will not be so painful anymore. And it will be a different pain. It is not that the pain has changed, it will just be a wholly different pain. I think this example is, is, uh, is plausible or makes the idea plausible. Uh, another example I make is to drink coffee with, with a glass of water or to drink coffee with uh, Coca-Cola. I mean, it is not just the same taste, it's a different taste, it's a different experience. I think these cases are plausible. I'm not sure how plausible the principle is if I just look at the table and I hear Vivaldi, I look at the table and I hear Metallica, it just looks great the same way. But anyway, this is what James thinks. Eh? This is the principle that James holds. And if we gave these two principles, then we have a problem with mental composition, James thinks, because he thinks that the panpsychist has to say that there are experiences in the neurons Neurons are them, themselves something complex, so neurons are little minds or come together with little minds and all these little minds of the neurons somehow come together within a broader mental space which is the, the mind of, of a human being. And what this seems to require is what James calls the assumption that states of consciousness can separate and combine themselves freely and keep their own identity unchanged while forming parts of simultaneous fields of, of experience of wider scope. So I've called this the sharing principle, and this is the idea that an experience, so the same experience, the very same experience, can simultaneously occur within two distinct psychical worlds. The very ex same experience in this case can be felt by two different feelers, the lesser mind of the neuron and the larger mind of the human being. And if we have this free principle then, or if we have this, this notion or this way of understanding combination, then we do have a problem because it is not difficult, it's not easy to see how an experience, let's call it E, could be shared, remaining itself, while it is shared by the M, the larger mind of a human being, and N, the smaller mind of the neuron. Uh, why? Well, if you have phenomenal essentialists, then we have the claim that an experience is just the way it feels, so one and two. E will have to be E as it is felt by N or within, and E will have to be E as it is felt or within, within M. But surely N and N, the, the mind of a neuron and the mind of a human being, will have to have different contents. I, I hope my mind, or I do tend to think it's plausible that my mind has, is a richer content than just to the mind of a neuron, if there is any such thing. So if it is true, then in, if you also have phenomenal holism, then we can just substitute and we have that A as, or we can just conclude that A as felt by N is different than A as felt by M. And so by substitution we get by A is different from itself, which is a contradictory claim. So in this way I think James is able really, but because he holds to this phenomenological assumption and because he holds to a certain model of understanding composition to claim that there is a real contradiction. So if this is, if this is true or or if we, are, if we happen to be philosophers that are in this, in this situation at some point in our reflection, then the question is what should we do? I think the solution of James is to say, <laughs> drop logic. Okay, mental combination takes place, but uh, we just can't understand how. Uh, this raises a difficulty. I mean, if we can't understand why, <laughs> or if, if we can even see that there is a contradiction, 
how can we claim that there is such a thing? I think this is a real, a real difficulty. I think the answer by James that we knew it by having this sort of experience immediately. So it is a kind of irration irrationalist mysticism that, that, James, that James has. He must have some sort of experience of union. And so he has some immediate confidence that something happens, that combination happens, even if we cannot uh, understand it uh, conceptually. Uh, uh, the, second, the second option, which is, I think, the one we, we will have to go to if we are philosopher, it is, uh, well, not that strong. If we have to go to, James was surely a philosopher. <laughs> if, we, if, we, if we want to try to understand things and not just appeal to intuition, which some people might not have, is to reject either one of the assumptions why that is, uh, uh, James is, uh, is, is holding. So uh, I make a pause here, and I will now go to the second part of my paper, and it is to see if Whitehead, or as Griffin contends, is pan-experientialism, does really escape this kind of problem. But I think this is a difficulty that is an even solution like those of David should have to take care of. These are constraints with any solution uh, must, must respect. So any solution of uh, the composition problem, or if you are working toward a solution, you must be careful not to fall in this sort of trap that James is as identified. Otherwise, you will have a, a contradiction. So I think this is perhaps or can be seen as the start towards a constructive uh, uh, solution. So uh, this is my first part. Let's now go to the second part, and let's go talking on about Whitehead. Okay, Whitehead, I can't give for granted that all of you know Whitehead, but the basic ideas are very simple. So reality is made up of, of entities, which are not things that endure through time, but are just momentary existences, just pulses of, of existences, succeeding one another. And these are conceived as moments of, of the human mind. So just to make an example, if uh, I now say ta-ta-ta-ta, I think all of you, or most of you, will, will say, OK, phenomenologically, this comes as a unity, as a whole unity, ta -ta -ta -ta, with a duration through time. And the idea of, of, of Whitehead is that not just our mental life comes in pulses of this sort, of unities, but that the, the structure of, of even the most simple elements of reality is of this, is of this kind, is, is, is full of this model, that you have just pulsations of, of experiences following one, uh, one another. And his idea is that each moment of experience, each, let's say, its total mental state, it says preempts some of the experience of the previous occasion, so relates somehow to the experience of the, of the previous occasions. I will focus later on this notion of preemption, which is, I think, what really creates the, the problem. And why that goes on to interpret preemption as a form of, uh, of causation. What he makes, he then thinks that all the complex that we see in reality are made of these occasions or pulsations of experience. And the difference that we see between a human being and, uh, and a chair are real differences, but they are not difference in, in the things that compose them. They are more difference in the way these things are organized. So his philosophy is really a kind of ontological type morning. There is just one kind of thing, these actual occasions, and different between kind of things at the macroscopic level are explained in terms of different organizations and ways of functioning of, of, these, of these things. So this is my simple model, is mock rings for understanding what a causal <laughs> a mental okay, uh, actual occasion is. This is how I picture it to myself. This will be a single actual occasion, a moment of experience. Then you have 
one's mockering coming out of the other. And this is the way our mental life develops. And this is how the life of all simple particles in reality develops. And all these streams coalesce to form society of different structures. And in this way, the whole reality emerges. So this is the vision of, of Whitehead. And the sec I like the second image because it shows that there is some sort of connection between, between smoke rings. And there is some elements which they share. And this sharing, which is here visualized through the, 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 the rings, will be, will be what Whitehead calls uh, prehension. OK. Now, what, uh, this, is, this are, is just the ontological framework. And what Griffin now says, Griffin is the foremost advocate of this kind of view, is that this kind of theory that Whitehead has does not have to face the composition problem. Uh, he says the composition problem counts only against the identist form of panpsychism, according to which our unified conscious experience is supposed to be strictly numerically identical with the much more restricted experience of the billions of neurons in the brain, which is, I think, also the position that Goff is, uh, was attack, Philip was attacking in his, in his paper. Now, what Griffin points out is that Awaitedian needs not to say there is just a brain and somehow the mind emerges. Awaitedian can say, look, there is the brain, there is the mind, they are two, like Descartes said, but this view different from Descartes in that they are not two different substances. One is mental or experiential, but the brain is itself a society of mental things. So it is a kind of dualism, but it is a non-Cartesian dualism. It is numer a numerical difference, but it is not a difference in, in kind, what kind of things they, they are. So Griffin calls the position non-Cartesian uh, dualism. The human mind at any one moment is not constituted by the lesser mentalities going on in the brain. It is a distinct reality that causally interacts through this mechanism of prevention with occasions entering into the brain's constitution. Now, you might think this, this idea is strange. Uh, it doesn't matter, but, but I think it is a new model. And it's certainly a model that is neglected. We tend to think that dualism is and either property dualism or Cartesian dualism. There is also this notion of dualism, and there is also this sort of theory. And I think Griffin has, is right in saying this is something different from what we usually think about, about when we talk of dualism. OK, now let's go to the notion of prevention. How do these actual occasions connect? Uh, I think what, what, what it is really doing, at least part of what it is doing, is just taking a phenomenological concept and using it, transforming it into a metaphysical notion. So the phenomenological concept is, is what James calls the echoing of the past in the present, or what Husserl uh, called the retention. So uh, the idea here is, in the last passage, this is all I should have had on the end out, is this passage by James, which he thinks it comes from Brentano. What happens when I hear a thunder? Yeah? It is not just that there is silence, and then a break, and then there is thunder. But I hear that the silence is broken by the thunder. So my experience is, is not just silence and then thunder. So as perhaps Hume would have said, it is just a duration in which I hear the past silence flowing in and being broken. So what happens in this case is that in the present moment of experience, some past experience has retained, Husserl would, uh, would say. And James says they are echoed in the present. And, uh, uh, and this is the phenomenological notion. And I think this is something that is true. I mean, I, I recognize this as a very nice description of, of, uh, uh, of, of my, of my uh, um, stream of, of, of consciousness, that some past experiences are retained. There is a kind of fading echo that comes in the present and then moves to, to, the next, to the next moment of experience. I'm not sure that this is true of the whole of our stream of consciousness. So if there were a bomb here exploding now, 
uh, I think I will be just catapulted in a whole new state of consciousness, having no, no prevention, no, for a moment at least, no, no grasp of the, of the past. But surely in many cases there is such, such a phenomenon, I think, of, of uh, uh, so retention or retention. And this is the phenomenological notion. What, what it does, it transforms this really in a metaphysical notion. And what is echoing is really the real, ontologically real passage of experiences from one total state of, of mind into the next state of mind. So what is really, a, what Husserl says is an echoing on a phenomenological level now become, using a terminology from Leibniz, an influx a real passage of something into the next, the next, the next uh, moment. But surely, here we got phenomenologically a problem because the, the silence I experience when there is no thunder and the silence I experience when uh, the, the silence is broken are not precisely identical. Something just retained uh, seems to me to, to feel slightly different than something that is immediately enjoyed. So if I have a piece of music, I hear notes, for instance, the moment I hear the notes for, for the first time, they, they have a vivacity, then the next moment is lost. Although the notes are still present in, in the next moment of, of experience. What does this mean? Well, it means for Whitehead, and this is, I think, something he recognizes, that it must, it must make a distinction between being an experience and the way the experience appears. So in his theory, we must have an experience in one mental state, in a global mental state that moves to the next, remains the same experience, but what changes just is ways of appearing. And this is precisely what, where it can be criticized now, because if one experience changes its mode of, of, of appearance, it is not the same experience anymore. There is no, no, no influx. So this is what, uh, what I think is really, is really uh, problematic. So, the problem with why the notion of prevention or influx is, I think, is precisely the same that prevented understanding mental composition on James Conswell of it. James has two total mental states, synchronically conceived, considered one is larger, the other is within. What White does is two global mental states, they just, they just horizontally pose or horizontally located, just diachronically considered, but just precisely the same conceptual difficulty. How can the same experience, which is felt differently, because it belongs to two larger worlds, be immediately, the, be, be really the, the same. And I think Griffin has no, I'm not aware he discusses this problem, but it seems to me this is precisely the way, or the same problem that White, that James, James, James uh, has. There are some further problems with, with Griffin, but I will not discuss that. Uh, I think his position will, I mean, not, not now, just for the reason of time. Uh, I think his position, uh, can be charged with anthropomorphism. There is a problem how to avoid panpsychism to, to become a ridiculous position. Uh, and it is a, a real challenge. We need somehow to say something about the basic experience of reality. All we have is our subjectivity. How do we make this, this, this step? And I think the way Griffin and White does is can be charged with the idea of uh, with the charge of anthropomorphism. But I will not go into this into this. Now I will just go to my conclusion. So uh, my conclusion are three. One is that panpsychism is really supported by a strong argument, not a proof, which is a uh, Strawson argument. There is no reason to think, this is my second conclusion, that the composition problem is insoluble in principle, contrary to what many seem to believe. Serre is, is another one who seems to believe this. 
And the third conclusion is that the most articulated version of um, psychins that we have fails to deal adequately with it. This is why that pan experiential is because the problem just reemerges there in a different way. There is a final critique always by, by Goff, which I think has many good, good points against uh, palm psychism. Uh, his point is that, okay, but if there is the composition problem, where is the explanatory advantage of, uh, of uh, uh, palm psychism over, over, over uh, materialism? Uh, I think that, um, and this conclusion is, if there is no explanatory advantage, the theory is implausible, just forget about it. So it says the view is just so counterintuitive and so metaphysically demanding that it's just not worth investing in it. Now, I have some sympathy with this, but I will qualify my response. I will say that there is one sense in which this does fails to do justice to the pump psychist case. So I think the whole point of Strauss's argument is to say that materialists and pump psychists are not equivalent position in respect to the heterogeneity problem. His point is that materialism is burdened by the heterogeneity problem in a way in which pump psychism is not, because in one because in case of pump psychism you have the being of the same kind. The, the transition will have to be on a being of the same kind and not being from one type and one another type of being. And I think Strawson is here right in answering this point in this way. What I do think that there is a problem which Whiteadian uh, and pump psychists in general tend to underplay is that we have concentrated so far about subjectivity. So all the argument by White really, if you, are, if you accept it, compels us to say it, that, that, is that there must be some what it is like feeling there in the ultimate constituents of, of reality. But now what happens in, in development of the experience is that we have people who are capable of doing mathematics. Uh, and so intentionality emerges. So uh, this gap between subjectivity and being with consciousness in the sense of intentionality seems to be a real gap. So if we bring intentionality here and we just not focus on subjectivity, I'm afraid that there might be a problem of uh, as difficulty as the heterogeneity problem for the pump psychist as, as well. Uh, so what should the pump psychist claim? So Scribrina, I think he claims that the theory offers a resolution, eh? I think this is, or solves, eh? to problems that have vexed philosophers for centuries, which I think you, you said. <laughs> uh, I think Griffin, uh, which is always, uh, uh, it's not really moderating his claim, says that the new century will be a Whiteadian century. Okay. I, and this is, I think it's mostly replied to Philip for some things he wrote. I, think, I don't think that Pamsaki should claim to have solved anything. And if they do, I think they are mistaken. I think what the reason that Pamsaki thinks his reason should be taken seriously is just that he sees is that the sole answer to what he perceives to be a very real problem. So what my point here is that you have this real problem, Strawson, what seems to be a plausible or intuitive solution or a reasonable solution is panpsychism. And all criticisms that one reads are against the conclusion, just against the conclusion. But I think this kind of, uh, of attack is legitimate, but it will not do anything to help us philosophically. So it is right to attack the conclusion, but unless the source of the position is eliminated, what creates the problem is, is something about that is that the position will keep popping up. So I think the real criticism that a materialist should do is to show what is wrong precisely in the way Strawson puts up his, uh, his case. So they should show what is wrong with the heterogeneity uh, problem. I think this will be the only effective way at this point to, to show pump site is, is not an option. And I'm not aware that there is any such, such criticism. Okay, this is all I have to say.
Thank you very much.